This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive and accepting place now and for future generations. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is Dr. Karen, and welcome to another episode of Are They 18 Yet? This is episode 11, and I am so excited about the guest for today. I am talking with Catherine Endy from The Family Life Coach. Catherine is a parent coach and social worker and is also a PhD candidate because she's currently doing research on the impact and relationship of parent stress on parenting. So it was really interesting to hear her perspective on how this can impact the way that we show up for our kids. The thing about a lot of the parenting advice out there is that a lot of it is kid-focused. So we're all focused on what are the kids feeling, what are the kids doing, How do we change the behavior in our children? But we don't spend a lot of time focusing on how to change our own behavior. And if you think about it, you are the adult, you are the one that can provide that emotional balance to the relationship, and that can have a huge impact on all those other things that I mentioned. So how well-adjusted your kids are and how they're able to learn how to regulate their own emotions, and stay balanced. So we get into that in this episode. Catherine shares a ton of great advice and insight into how you as a parent can show up 
and teach your kids to be regulated and balanced and how you can build a strong relationship with your kids so that they can grow up to be kind, compassionate human beings. Before we get going in the episode, I wanted to share that I have a brand new resource for parents who want to help their kids become more independent with things like chores and homework. One of the things that has come up very often this year is figuring out how to support kids in getting all of their work done, which has been huge this year with remote learning, probably more so than most years. I know a lot of parents just feel like the missing assignments are piling up. It's hard to get kids motivated and on task when it comes to doing homework independently at home. So with the Time Study Journal, I actually walk through how you can help your child if they tend to procrastinate, avoid work, or if they just feel really overwhelmed with their homework and have a hard time putting it all together and managing deadlines. To check that out, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal and check it out. So this is a simple tool that you can use to walk through a strategy that takes about 10 to 15 minutes a day that is going to help build the time management and organization skills your kids need to be independent and successful. So just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal to check it out. So now let's get into the episode with Catherine Endy. Today, I am joined with Catherine Endy from The Family Life Coach. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. So great to be with you. So why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my name is Catherine Endy. I am a parenting researcher, educator, and coach and a doctoral candidate at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. I have a background in social work and I've worked with families of young children for over two decades. I now do that work primarily in a parent coaching format and work with parents um, of children of a variety of ages, typically around ages two to 10. Great. So what are you studying? You said you're a doctoral candidate, which means soon you're going to be Dr. Endy, right? That's right. Yeah. So what are you studying for your research? So I do research on parenting stress and particularly looking at ways that parenting stress can be reduced. My research is focused on mindfulness and examining whether or not things like self-compassion and emotion regulation are the key drivers of what makes mindfulness lower parenting stress. So we already know that mindfulness, whether in the form of meditation or focused awareness, we already know that that lowers parenting stress. So I'm really examining what what is it about mindfulness that uh, makes it lower parenting stress. And thus far, my research has pointed towards self-compassion and emotion regulation as those drivers. Great. So what, what made you want to study that? Well, I've been very interested in parenting just in general for my entire career as a social worker. And 
when I learned more about the brain and brain development and this concept of emotion regulation in adults, I was very hooked on the idea that this is really the key to, for lack of a better word, good parenting and, and lowered parenting stress, that being able to manage one's own emotions is really where it's at in terms of um, becoming a better parent. So often we expect children to be the ones to be able to regulate their emotions when, and we forget or neglect the step where the parent is really the emotional regulator of the parent-child dyad. So helping parents to get calm and regulated is really the key to teaching children and enabling children to be able to manage their own emotions and their own behavior. So when I saw this playing out in my clinical work with families, I realized that so much of what we tend to focus on is the child's behavior. We tend to focus on, you know, is the child doing what I expect them to do or not? And we miss the emotion regulation piece. So, and so much of the research that I had read up till that point about parenting and about uh, parenting interventions, for example, parenting programs, the outcome that was that was the focus of the research was the child's behavior. And I kept thinking, you know, this is not really the point. The point is the long game of parenting and the relationship between the parent and child in the long run. And that really hinges on the adult's ability to regulate their emotions in the moment. Yeah, I can, I definitely have seen that too, where it seems like a lot of the parenting strategies are focused on what to do with the the child, not what the parent can do for themselves. Did you see that too? I mean, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And, you know, you see a child's behavior is triggering to a parent. And, and by that, I mean, the, you know, the child will do something that's breaking a rule or, you know, they're having a tantrum, something like this, and it stirs up an emotional response in the parent. And by the time that happens, what you do in response to your child's behavior doesn't matter so much as how you show up as a parent, right? So I, I sometimes say it's not what you do, it's how you be, <laughs> which is not yeah. correct, but it's really about the emotional presence of the parent because the reality is children are growing and developing, right? And so, and their brains are still developing. And so they don't have the capacity to do what we expect them to do every single time when we expect them to do it. And so what makes things, what makes it go well and what makes it effective is when the parent can calm themselves first and be the emotional regulator of that relationship and then respond to their child's behavior appropriately rather than being reactive all the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because if you think about the child, they're still developing, they might not know yet how to regulate themselves. And so is it really reasonable to expect them to be able to do that all the time, especially if we're not doing it? Exactly. And, you know, it's like the, the reason that's true, and I'm sure you know, this is that adults have a fully functioning prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain where We can use logic and language and planning. And also it's the part of the brain that regulates all the other parts of the brain. It it regulates the emotional part of the brain. And so children don't really have that online yet. And especially when they are 
you know, in an emotional state, if they're, or, or if their needs aren't met, if they're hungry, if they're lonely, if they're tired, if they're angry, if they have to go to the bathroom, you know, all these things, if they're not feeling, you know, comfortable and calm and don't have their needs met, they're not able to regulate their emotional state. And so they rely on a calm and regulated adult brain to bring them back into balance. And so if, for example, um, a child gets into an emotional state, they're, they, they've broken a rule or they're upset or whatever it is, and the parent's response is to send them away, to send them to a timeout or go to your room or something like this, you miss the opportunity to help your child get back to emotional balance when what they really need is a calm and regulated adult to get close and get quiet and help them get back to balance. Yeah. I'm just thinking about <laughs> there's there was some meme that said something about I I'm sorry about what I did when I was hungry and that is so true with so many of my family members we like to eat. So I can just think of so many times when I was crabby because I was hungry as a child, as an adult and when I was younger I didn't always understand why I was doing things the way I was doing them. So that it makes a lot of sense now that you're saying it that way. Yeah. Yes. I, I have a client actually who found that this concept of it's an acronym, H-A-L-T, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And one of my clients actually added the P at the beginning, the having to pee. So it now, it oh, is, yeah, yeah. now, now it's P-H-A-L-T. It's fault with a P-H. But my, one of my clients said that when she learned that from me, it revolutionized their morning routine because what they realized is that their daughter wasn't eating. I think she's four. She wasn't eating breakfast when she first got up. And so she was all dysregulated all morning. And what they realized is she was waking up really hungry. And so now they know when she wakes up, they feed her right away. And then the morning goes so much more smoothly. So sometimes it's just a matter of thinking to yourself, okay, I see that my child is dysregulated. Which of these basic needs needs to be met? Which, which could it be just like you would do with an infant, right? Like, are they mm -hmm. crying because they're wet or they're hungry or they're tired, right? We need to do, we really need to do that same process with older children. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious. So there's the physical things like eating, peeing, both of those would definitely be triggers for me, still are, but also just personality tendencies or introversion and extroversion. So what if you have a really extroverted parent who likes to be around people all the time and makes the assumption that her child wants that as well? And then you have a child who needs time to recharge by themselves. Do you see that a lot where there's a mismatch between the parent's personality and what makes them feel recharged versus the child's is a little bit different? Yes. And I love that you asked this. And, and where I learned this the most is actually with my own children. And where this sort of plays out is that I have three children, um, two daughters and a son, and, and I am an introverted person or what is known as like an extroverted introvert. Like I love people. I love connecting. I love interacting. And then I really do need that time to recharge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think if you met me in person, you would think like, you know, that she's an introvert because I'm not shy, but, but I do need that time to recharge. And most of the people in our family are that way where we get really 
emotionally and socially exhausted and we need that time. And, you know, and so a lot of, for example, during the pandemic, my, my daughters are, have often been in their rooms with their doors shut and everyone just needs that space. Right. And what I learned though, is that my son who's 10 is an extrovert and he needs that social connection and he needs that ability to be around other children. And he was going completely crazy in the first few months of the pandemic because we weren't seeing anyone. And when I realized that he needed an opportunity to play, of course, safely and outdoors and everything with other children and was able to meet that need with a neighbor, everything shifted for him in terms of his mental state and his mood because he was getting his extroversion need met. And it is tricky when when there is that mismatch, because the rest of us are like, leave me alone. I'm tired. I don't want to talk to anybody. Right. (laughs) But I think just being able to learn your child's tendencies around introversion or extroversion. And honestly, he, he, I don't think I really realized it about him until we had that intensity of the pandemic. He used to, you know, we, when my kids were all in the same school, I would go and pick them up and he would just beg to stay and play on the playground for 20 minutes. And my daughters were like, could we please just go home? I just want to curl up on my blankets, you know, and it's difficult to meet everyone's needs. But I, I guess I just thought, you know, oh, he just wants to play all the time. Or, you know, I didn't really understand that it was actually an, an extroversion need until the pandemic when I saw it play out in a different way. So in terms of how to handle that, you know, I think it's important to be in touch with your own introversion or extroversion as a parent and find ways to get the recharge that you need. And then, you know, plan ahead a little bit, right? Like if you know your child's an extrovert and you know they're going to need extra time on the playground after school, for example, you just make an agreement like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we will stay for 20 minutes and the introverts in the family can sit in the car and read their book or whatever they need to do and know that they will get their need met a little bit later. And the rest of the week, we're going to come right home. And, you know, and so making those compromises. We have the same situation with my husband and I are introverts and my stepdaughter is an extrovert, but we, we started to realize that way earlier (laughs) than the pandemic, but yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely an intense year for that reason. That's always the example that has made a lot of sense to me because I remember when I was younger, it was the opposite where I was an introvert and I really needed time by myself and some other people in my family were extroverts. And so I would get so cranky and I didn't understand why. And (laughs) I think sometimes my parents didn't understand why. And so until, yeah, that that makes I think it, I think it is liberating too as a parent to make that connection when you can make that realization that okay we have different needs and that my child's not acting this way to piss me off or because they're difficult or anything like that right that they actually have like sort of a nervous system mm-hmm. drive and a personality drive it just makes it so much easier to be compassionate and to recognize you know just like if they had I don't know, a broken ankle and you couldn't stay out walking all day long, you know, you would bring them home and let them rest. And I think being able to see your children's personality needs as true needs and not as an inconvenience is, is really powerful. When you're working with parents, what are some of the most common challenges that you see? 
Getting back to our earlier conversation about emotion regulation, I think that that is a huge one. Um, I think that parents, because they just don't have the information, expect children to be able to regulate their emotions and their behavior. And so I see a lot of, you know, parents being uncertain of how to manage or meet their child's behavior because they have these old ways of thinking about what child behavior means. And so what I mean by that is we, we were raised by parents, you know, adults of this time, adults of our generation were raised by parents who did not have a whole lot of information about the brain or brain development or neuroscience or emotions, right? That wasn't part of the kind of general knowledge Mm -hmm. because we didn't have an fMRI, right? We didn't have a way to look inside the brain when they were growing up or when they were being parented. So, so all of the parenting that we received was based on this like good and bad behavior, you know, children are good or bad or children should be seen and not heard. Like all these kind of old beliefs that were passed Mm -hmm. down from their parents and their grandparents. And so even parents who want to parent consciously or want to use, you know, positive parenting practices or these kinds of things, they don't, they haven't yet realized that, that they're missing, maybe they're missing the information, or maybe it's just that they, they might have the information. They might know about the brain. They might know that kids can't regulate themselves emotionally, things like that, but they're still hanging on to these old beliefs that, that come into conflict with the information that they have, if that makes sense. So, Mm -hmm. so they're, you know, it's like, I know that I'm supposed to offer my kid a ton of empathy but I'm still really pissed because I think that she should behave a certain way, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's like a mismatch between the new information and the, the old wiring that we have as adults that we have an expectation of kids to behave a certain way. So I think it really does come down to getting and integrating that new information and then adjusting your expectations accordingly. And I think it's hard for parents to do that because, you know, some, sometimes what I teach is you just need to lower your expectations and then parents worry, like my kid is going to be a sociopath. <laughs> it's gonna yeah, be, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a free for all and they think they can run the house and all. it's not that like new paradigm parenting or conscious parenting or positive parenting. It doesn't mean permissive parenting. It doesn't mean it's a free for all. It doesn't mean the kids run the show. It means that you understand development and brain development and parent accordingly. And the truth is when you do that, it's so much more effective because you're meeting them where they are and you're not resisting what is right. Like you're not resisting the thing that's actually going on in the moment, which is that they are in a lower state of their brain and they can't control their behavior. So when you recognize that, then you can do something about it. But if you're, if you're just expecting them to do what you say all the time, even when they're in their emotional brain, you're fighting a losing battle because they're literally incapable of doing what you're asking them to do. Sometimes the tendency is to almost lean into it and want to argue with them when they are not in a state where they can make any sense of what you're saying. I think it's, it's almost like the, the Charlie Brown cartoon where it's just want, 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 like they're not hearing you. They're not processing what you're saying. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think it's especially tricky with kids who are really verbal when they're in that emotional brain. So, you know, when you, when, when any human goes into sort of the lower centers of their brain, they don't have access to as much language with little kids. They often don't talk at all, or they're, you know, they don't really make sense. And Mm -hmm. 
there's no point in arguing, as you say, there's no point in arguing with a kid who's sort of in that part of the brain. Where it's really tricky is with kids who are really verbal and they will respond to you and they'll say things to you and you think they are making sense, like you think they're coherent and that they are, you know, in their thinking brain, but they're really not and they're not processing what you're saying. So it's not worth it to get into an argument with a kid who's in that emotional state. Yeah. Well, and I think, wouldn't it be almost like arguing with an adult when you're both in a highly emotional state, you both have access to your language centers because you're adults with well-developed language, but it doesn't mean that you're going to say things that you won't regret (laughs) saying later. Exactly, exactly. Everyone knows that homework isn't a kid's favorite thing to do. But wouldn't it be nice to get through the day without meltdowns and power struggles? For a lot of parents that I work with, it starts in the morning as they're trying to get everyone out the door on time and then continues throughout the day as clutter is piling up in every corner of the house. But when it's time to get homework done, that's when the daily arguments really start. And sometimes kids are willing to spend more time arguing than actually getting their work done, which makes it really hard to enjoy the evening as a family or as a parent have time for self-care after everyone goes to bed. So if this sounds familiar, you're certainly not alone. In my time as a pediatric speech pathologist supporting students with diverse learning needs, I have heard these things from a lot of the families that I've worked with. But what a lot of people don't realize is that things like defiance, refusing to do work, avoidance, procrastination, lack of motivation, focus and effort, or just overall underperforming when it comes to homework and schoolwork, a lot of these things are symptoms of a bigger problem. And procrastination is often a sign of a skill-based issue that impacts many highly intelligent people. Which means if you have a child who does tend to procrastinate, it doesn't mean that they have a behavior problem or that they're lazy. It simply means that they might not have the right skills to know how to get that task done. The good news is that when you address the root cause with the right strategy, it's possible to help kids keep track of their things, pay attention to details, become aware of deadlines, start and finish tasks in a reasonable amount of time, or to be able to sense how long tasks will take so that they can plan ahead. And most importantly, experience some success so they can envision themselves being successful again in the future. That's why I've created the Time Tracking Journal. The Time Tracking Journal is a simple toolkit that walks parents through a set of strategies that will help build time management, motivation, and self-confidence in their kids while they're doing daily tasks like homework and chores. Once you learn how to use a strategy, this is something really simple that you can do in about 10 to 15 minutes a day. And when you sign up for the time tracking journal, not only do you get the actual toolkit, which is a downloadable journal that just walks you through a set of steps to help build these skills in your kids as they're doing their day-to-day tasks. You'll also learn some strategies to help improve time management skills, to help kids understand how done looks, and to help kids get tasks done more efficiently and effectively and build critical thinking skills in the process. 
To grab the time tracking journal, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. One simple strategy done consistently can be the difference between constant power struggles and a peaceful, thriving home. And that is what I help you do with the time study journal. So just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal to check it out. I'm curious if there has been other things or advice given to parents that you think is bad advice (laughs) or things that parents should not listen to. Yeah. Interestingly, I just had a couple of parents in the same week, two or three parents in the same week who told me they had used a book called one, two, three magic. It's sort of an an approach or a technique Mm -hmm. that. Yep. I've heard of that. (laughs) Um, And I will admit I was exposed to this early in my parenting career um, when my child was very, very young, many, many years ago. Um, And I, by very credible social workers who were trying to teach like a more appropriate way to respond to child behavior. And the, the challenge with that book, and for those who don't know, it's basically giving your child sort of a warning, you count to three in this kind of slow way. And when you get to three, you basically give them a timeout. And they, mm-hmm. I think that they kind of couch it in like, it's sort of like a friendlier timeout or because you're not, you know, yelling or, you know, losing your cool that it's somehow better. But the reality is when you withdraw your attention from a child, when they are in their time of need, you are doing damage, you're doing harm because what they really need, as we said earlier, is that connection. They need emotional connection to be able to get regulated. So and, and the whole counting to three thing, I mean, I think that book is a, is a take on something that a lot of parents used to do, which is, you know, I'm going to count to three. Mm. And a lot of parents, when you got to three, like nothing happened, right? It's just like, yeah, a just, lot of people are, um, they're all talk. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like it's just becomes a threat, right? But what happens with that is that your child pretty quickly figures out what happens when you get to three, which is that they get a timeout or they can read in your tone of voice that you're not happy with them. And so it just teaches them to be afraid of you and to be afraid of the consequences. Right. And so I don't find it to be particularly effective. And again, it depends on what your outcome is or what, what your desired goal is, right? Like if you want your child to be afraid of you and you want them to feel like they are being abandoned in their time of need, Sure, that's a great approach, but I don't think any parent really wants that, right? Like we yeah. want to meet our kids where they are. We want to be supportive and we want to respond appropriately when they're having a hard time. I mean, look, when kids are behaving badly, in, which I say in air quotes, because I don't think there's really any bad behavior. Behavior is a neutral thing. But when kids are behaving in a way that we don't like, it's because they need something. They need support. If they could behave better, they would. Children want to please us. They want to do what is being asked of them. And so when we, you know, count to three or put them in a timeout or, you know, withdraw our love and attention from them, we're, we're basically abandoning them when they need us the most. I remember lots of parents using that book when I was working in the schools, especially when there were behaviors that parents or teachers or whoever thought were behaviors that we didn't want or you know, again, the air quote thing, bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely came up a lot. And 
a lot of the the explanation often given by different people was if you give a tantrum, for example, or if you give, you know, whatever the negative behavior is, if you give it attention, you're rewarding it. And that's that's a lot of times the way it was explained to me. I'm curious how you would explain that mm-hmm. or what your thoughts so, are. On that yeah. So what you just, philosophy. just described is a behaviorist view, right? It's yep. out of the behaviorist philosophy, which is that behavior increases when you reward it and it decreases if you punish it or if you remove a reward, right? And that's really kind of the opposite of what I teach because, you know, again, that is all based on power and control. It's all based on manipulation, really. So in terms of the question about, you know, say it's a tantrum, for example, that if you give it your attention, that you're reinforcing it in some way, the reality is twofold. One, as we've talked about, the child's in their emotional brain. So whatever you do, they're not going to remember it. And they're not, you know, you're not training a dog. (laughs) So so they're not going to remember how you responded to their tantrum because they're not in a state of their mind where they're able to do that. And secondly, and more importantly, you can ignore the behavior without ignoring the child. Mm, yeah. And what and what that would look like in practice is, you know, say your child is hitting you because they're so dysregulated that they, you know, and again, they can't help it. It might feel very intentional, but they really can't help it. You know, you would put your arm up and block the hit and say, I can't let you hit me. And then you, you so you're, you're ignoring or sort of minimizing the behavior without ignoring the child. You know, I can see that you're really upset right now. I know you're disappointed that we didn't get to go to the park. It's really too bad that it started raining. I know that's really frustrating. I know you, you know, and really validating the child's feelings and their experience and really minimizing what's going on in terms of their behavior. So you can, you know, put your hand out and block it. You can sort of turn your head away a little bit and say, "Mm mm-mm. You know, and, but, but you, so you're minimizing the attention that you give to the behavior and amplifying the, t- the attention that you give to the child. Yeah, that's, I think that's a helpful explanation because it does tease it out a little bit of, okay, what, where should you focus your attention and where should you minimize your attention? It almost sounds like the behaviorist philosophy was almost there, but not quite. <laughs> well, and I, and I think what, what it was missing is the emotional connection or the relationship. Yeah. Right. And the, the truth is like, you are in relationship with this person. So there, there's, there's kind of two parts of parenting, right? There's your relationship with your child and then there's your role as their parent. So in your role as their parent, yes, it's your job to set boundaries and keep them safe and make sure they're fed and that they have a routine and that they get to school on time, all of these things, right? That's your role. And I think parents tend to get caught up in that and forget the other more important part, which is their relationship. So that's where that, you know, it's not what you do, it's how you be comes into it, which is like your, what's really going to matter in the long run is how you show up as a parent, how you connect with your child. So they're, you know, whether you got out the door on time to school on a random Tuesday in April is not going to matter as much as how you handle that emotionally and in terms of your presence and your emotion regulation from the day to day, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. and the way that parents yeah. can do this, and, and this is where my work with, with parents in terms of parent coaching comes in is 
teaching parents how to be very, very aware of their own emotional state and be very present with themselves and be very much in relationship with themselves so that they can meet their child, so that they can do that relationship piece very well. And then, you know, then it doesn't matter if you're few minutes late to school or, you know, whatever is going on in terms of the daily routine, it doesn't matter as much because the real value, the real important thing is the relationship. That's really helpful. On that note of the whole, I guess, positive reinforcement and paying attention to one thing and not the other thing. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the whole philosophy of punishment and positive reinforcement, not necessarily in the moment, but where a lot of people are, are like, okay, if you finish your homework, you get to play video games or where it's, if you do this, then you get to do this other thing. And so how do you find the balance between teaching your child that there are naturally occurring consequences in life, that there are things that you need to be responsible for without it being just strict bribery and manipulation and making kids really um, almost reliant on that type Uh of thing. Yes. Yeah. That's a great question. So, you know, broadly speaking, I think what I hear you getting at is that using rewards and consequences or rewards and punishments is a form of manipulation. And we want to steer away from that as much as possible. Right. And I actually can just say very confidently that you don't need to do that in order to raise lovely, kind, respectful, self-regulating humans. And I say that because I have, I stopped punishing my children when my oldest was two and she's 15 and we have, we're, we are a punishment free home. We don't go there. We don't do that. And honestly, in the very few times in the last 15 years that I've been tempted to go there, my children call my bluff every time. They're like, what are you talking about? You're not going to take us for ice cream if we don't be quiet. Like that's absurd. And that's mm-hmm. not how we roll. So, so yeah. and it's really about recognizing like, Oh, why did I say that? That's not what we do. Oh, because I was emotionally triggered. Right. Like mm-hmm. they were screaming in the back of the car and I got upset. Right. Because the truth is like the consequence or punishment often has nothing at all to do with the the thing that's going on, right? And so it doesn't make sense using the screaming in the back of the car example. We were literally in the garage about to leave to go get ice cream and everyone was bickering and fighting and I lost my cool and, you know, threatened to not take them for ice cream. But the reality is like the bickering had nothing to do with the ice cream at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just wanted them to calm down and be quiet. and we could still get, I could help them get calm and be quiet and be, you know, use appropriate driving in the car, you know, behavior and language and still take them for an ice cream. Like they have nothing to do with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard for parents to unwind because again, we were mostly raised in this world where like, you know, you better be quiet or I'm not going to take you for an ice cream is how we were trained. So, but in terms of, you know, you asked about, getting homework done and, you know, then you can play video games or, you know, I had a mom ask me recently, well, but so is it, does it count as punishment? Like if you don't put on your shoes, we can't go to the playground. No. I mean, you have to put on your shoes if you want to go play outside, right? This is just like, (laughs) I wouldn't even call that natural consequences. I just, that's just life, right? Like that's Uh just the flow of life. So, Mm -hmm. and I think in that case, 
certainly you could say that in a, a punitive way. If you don't put on your shoes, we can't go to the playground. You could say that in a tone of voice that would sound very threatening or punitive. Or, you know, you can just say it in a different way that like, you know, we can't go to the playground if you don't have shoes on. Yeah. Where it's, it's, it makes sense. It, it relates exactly. to each other. Whereas the other things are just, I'm just going to use this random thing to try to control your behavior that has exactly. nothing to do with whatever you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it does get tricky with things like homework and screen time. And, you know, I think parents need to choose whether they want to connect those things or not. Um, you know, I think you get into a, a kind of dicey situation. I think you put yourself in a dicey situation as a parent if you are connecting a bunch of desired behaviors and rewards or consequences because. Mm-hmm because then you have to follow through on that. And then you have to keep track of like, oh, he did or didn't do his homework on time. Therefore he gets 30 minutes of screen time or an hour of screen. You know, I just find with three kids that keeping track of people's screen time is like a full-time job mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's not something I'm willing to do. So either we're going to have screen time or during the week or we're not. And that's that, you know, and it's not tied to any other behavior because that just creates a lot more work for us as parents and it's arbitrary. Yeah. I mean, I think with, uh, with the screen time thing, that's something that we've worked through, but it's been more like, all right, if you're TikToking when you're supposed to be logged on to school, you're not going to be learning. So we don't do that because it's not, it's something that is going to negatively impact your learning. So the phone stays downstairs because that's what we do so that we're not distracted, but exactly. Yeah. It, it makes I think what you're saying is that it just has to make sense. It can't just be some weird arbitrary rule that wouldn't be something that would be the case when you're an adult. I I don't think that any adults would say, oh, I got my reports done. So tonight I qualify for 30 minutes of Netflix (laughs) time or something. Right, right. We also would probably say, you know what? I actually have time to watch a movie tonight because I got all my work done. So I have time to do something that I enjoy. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in terms of other sort of screen time rules for, for quite a while, we did have, you know, an hour a day or something, you know, something like this. And my kids have, you know, they have a variety of devices, like most kids these days do for better or for worse. Um, And I would, I noticed that one of my kids was sort of surreptitiously watching YouTube on another device. So it's hard to tell with like an iPod touch, for example, like, are they listening to music? Are they listening to a story? It's hard to to know exactly what they're doing. And when Mm -hmm. I realized that she was watching quite a lot of TV on her phone, you know, I said, you know, I could take this away. Like, do you need me to take this away from you because you're having trouble regulating yourself? Like, Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, I'm going to punish you. It was really about like, you know what the rule is and you're not following the rule. So what's going on with you? Is it too tempting? And it, the mm-hmm. truth was, it was too tempting for her. So we took it away, sort of, we agreed, right? It wasn't like, I'm taking that away from you because I'm the grown up and you're the kid and you did something bad. No, it was, what do you, you know what the rule is. So what do you need in order to be able to mm-hmm. follow the And if you're at age 11, unable to follow the rule because it's too tempting or it's too addictive, let's talk about that and how we can address that. And if what you need is for me to take it away, I'm willing to do that. How long do you need me to take it away for? 
I like how you explain that because it sounds like she is invested in the process and therefore probably not feeling resentful about it. Well, and that's the thing, right? It's like, I want to be in relationship with my kids and I want to be in relationship with them for their whole lives. And I, and, and so I want to set that up now so that they feel like I have their back as opposed to feeling like I'm going to catch them being bad. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a really different feeling to it and prioritizing the relationship, you know, it does require you to be much more in touch with yourself and your own emotions and require you to be able to and willing to kind of bend what you think the rules should be mm-hmm. and create rules and systems that work for your family. I'm sure with the more kids you have and the more humans in the house, the more flexible you have to be. hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. So how do you do it with, you have a business, you have a dissertation that you're working on. You have three children. I do. So how do you balance all of that? You know, I've put a lot of systems into place for myself that I've been very protective of in order to be able to function and not completely lose my mind in the face Mm -hmm. of all those things. Among them, I put pretty clear boundaries around my work time. So I, you know, I'm not a person who works at 10 o'clock at night. I don't answer emails late at night. And the reality is the older your kids get, the less you know, after hours time you have, Mm -hmm. everyone in our family pretty much goes to bed at the same time these days. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of, you know, after kids are in bed. So I'm, I'm pretty boundaried about my time. And that means that I have to be very efficient with my time. So when I am working, I have systems in place. I do a process called time blocking where I plan in advance what I'm, how I'm going to spend my work hours. I schedule it on my calendar and I make sure that if I've scheduled an hour to, you know, do some writing or, or work on a project that I get as much done or get it done in that period of time and make Mm -hmm. that commitment to myself. So it means that I'm not on Facebook or Instagram during my work hours. I'm not texting my friends or, you know, whatever. I'm trying to really minimize distractions. And it's been a little bit trickier during the pandemic because of course kids have been home and everything Mm -hmm. is a little bit wonky, but um, so having those systems in place. And then the other thing that's really just kept me sane and grounded and, and prevented me from completely losing it on my kids during this time of life when I have a lot going on is a daily mindfulness practice, which for me involves some journaling and a short period of meditation on most days I can work in a little bit of yoga and, you know, it might seem like I remember a time in parenting where I felt like that was never going to be possible to spend an hour doing quote unquote self-care. I thought that was just not ever possible, but when you start to put those things into place, even in small ways, like even if it were five minutes of meditation, it's so balancing and regulating for myself so that I can be functional and get work done and, and not yell at my kids. Mm-hmm. So it's completely worth it. And actually is just essential for my well being that I make that time. I mean, I'm fortunate that I work from home. So during normal times, you know, my husband gets the kids off to school and then the house is empty and I can spend that time and then get to work on my own schedule. But, you know, any parent who's kind of struggling with managing the work-life balance or managing stress, I would encourage them to just even, even three to five minutes of intentional 
breathing or mindfulness or meditation, I think can really go a long way. And there's tons of science behind this, right? Like it yeah. can really go a long way toward helping you to be a calm, regulated parent. Mm-hmm. I have a question that is partially self-serving because this is something that I've worked on, but I imagine it sounds like you work with a lot of parents who are achievers. So maybe they have a, a job that means a lot to them. They're working and they they might have achieved success in one area, but maybe don't always feel like they've achieved that success as parents. And I know that somebody with that type of personality might find something like a mindfulness practice or meditation where you're just sitting there breathing and on the surface, not really doing anything, almost almost maddening or almost feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not getting anything done. So what, what would you tell a parent who has that mindset, who, who almost sees that as, you know, am I doing this right? Is this, is this working? Am I doing anything? I mean, what do you ever have that come up? What would you tell somebody who thinks like that? Yeah, for sure. And you're right. I do work with a lot of sort of high achievers who are, you know, whether they're in academia, higher education, entrepreneurs, um, folks with really kind of high stress jobs who also, you know, want to show up as the best parent they can be, but they find that, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and there's only so much bandwidth you have, you know, mentally and emotionally to be able to do all the things. So it can be really challenging for parents, especially when their kids hit the sort of, you know, toddler, preschool, kindergarten age, that they they really feel kind of knocked over by how challenging it has suddenly become. Like a baby's, you know, maybe they don't sleep well, but a baby is relatively easy. A toddler, you know, through the, you know, early elementary years, the behavior and the things that you're up against are so much more challenging and parents Mm -hmm. do feel like, well, I've been very successful at my career, but I can't research my way out of this situation. Mm -hmm. I can't science my way out of this situation. You know, I need, I need ways to, you know, not only manage the behavior, but manage myself. So, you know, to your question about if sitting still is completely maddening, if meditation is completely elusive or feels, you know, doesn't feel helpful, there's something I call a micro break Mm -hmm. or like a mini break, right? So that you can, you can generate a list of ideas. So say you only have, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, like you're in between meetings or, you know, Anyone can find 30 seconds, right? That right. you just made a list of like, what are some things that I could do that take 30 seconds that could help me get back to balance? So that might be just intentionally taking some deep breaths or filling a glass of nice cold water and just really mindfully paying attention to what it feels like to drink that glass of water or intentionally looking out the window, choosing these things that will bring your your nervous system back to balance. So that's that's like micro breaks. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of expand to like, well, maybe I have five minutes, you know, maybe I have two to five minutes, like, well, maybe I could take a walk around the block or listen to my favorite song or, you know, anything that f- brings you back to yourself and brings mm-hmm. you back into emotional balance. And then, you know, generate a list of ideas for longer things. If you have a 30 minute break or you have a whole afternoon to yourself, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) But even, you know, even the act of planning, you know, some parents might be listening and thinking, there's no way I ever have a whole afternoon to myself. But just Mm -hmm. the act of imagining, but what if I did? Like, what if my husband took the kids, you know, on a little outing? Or what if, you know, a meeting got canceled and I unexpectedly had a couple hours to myself? It's worth it to know Mm-hmm. how you could use that time to bring yourself back to balance. Yeah. I know that sometimes when you unexpectedly have those things and you're used to just going, you feel like you don't know what to do with yourself and then you can't enjoy it. It's right. like on vacation where it takes you three days to relax and then it's time to come back home. <laughs> and I think this is really common in women that we don't know, you know, we get very wrapped up in the role of motherhood or stepmotherhood and we forget what we enjoy doing. We forget what fills us Mm -hmm. up. And so doing an exercise where you just spend a few minutes meditating on that. And I don't mean like actual meditation, but like thinking on that Mm -hmm. and writing down, like what, wouldn't it feel so good to just make a cup of tea and sit out on the back porch in the sunshine? You know, it could be simple things. Yeah. So meditation could be as simple as just breathing. It doesn't have to be you sitting in the, the, you know, what is it? The Buddha position saying, Om and be this whole seance or something. It's just, it can be as simple as just paying attention. Exactly. And that's really what mindfulness is. It's about attention, awareness, and intention. So being, you know, sitting and looking out the window on purpose. And that's what really makes the difference is the intentionality behind it. That makes sense. I know that I've definitely been guilty of overcomplicating mindfulness and overthinking it when it's just probably something that can be easy. It can be easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I just have one one more question for you before we wrap up. I'm just curious if you, when you have parents that come in who are just super overwhelmed and they're just you can just tell that they're just at the end of their rope. You've you've shared a lot of really helpful things today, but I'm curious if you just have one piece of advice that you could leave us with that is something that you would share to a parent who is just kind of, you know, again, at the end of the line where they're like, help me, what do I do? Yeah, well, again, so many of the things we just talked about, you know, mm-hmm. building in some micro breaks and things like that can be really helpful. But I think the other piece that we didn't talk about that's so important is the self-compassion piece. And this might sound kind of woo-woo or soft or whatever, but the truth is parenting is hard and parenting and working and managing life is a lot. And, and we tend to be, you know, culturally, we're very, very hard on ourselves and we hold ourselves to a very high expectation. And when you start to listen to your own thoughts, you know, you become aware and, and I work with my clients on this a little bit, like, would you let another person talk to you that way, the mm-hmm. way that you are talking to yourself? No, yeah. that would be horrible. Like some of the things that parents are saying to themselves, if they really like say out loud what they're saying in their heads, they realize how hard they're being on themselves and how critical they're being. Watching that self-talk and then just shifting it so that instead of saying, you know, I'm such a horrible mom or I'm failing at this or whatever, is to just even like, place your hand on your heart and, and offer yourself some compassion the way that you would a friend. Like if you're, if your neighbor who's also a mom called you and said, I'm so overwhelmed and work is so stressful. And then I yelled at the kids and now I feel terrible and I feel so guilty and I, all of that. You wouldn't say you're a horrible mom. 
Mm-hmm. That would be absurd, right? That would be so unkind. You would say, no, sweetie, you're doing a great job. It's a lot right now. You know, how can you get some support? Like you would say kind and helpful things to that person. And so the self-compassion piece is really about talking to yourself the way you would talk to a friend or your sister or your neighbor when they're having a difficult time. Mm-hmm. That's so important to remember. And I think something that we all are continuing to work on. It's a learning process for sure. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So before we wrap up, where can people find out more about how to connect with you and learn more about what you do? Yeah, so my business is called The Family Life Coach, and my website is katherineendy.com. So that's Catherine with a K. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook um, at The Family Life Coach. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. All right, this is a good place to wrap up, but thank you so much for listening. Just a couple housekeeping things before we wrap up. First, don't forget to check out the time tracking journal if you want a tool to help you get through homework and chores with ease without nagging or bribes. If you struggle to get your kids to be independent with some of those day-to-day tasks that they may not like to do, but need to learn how to do in order to be independent people one day. And if you want to just have peace of mind that you're number one, helping them build the skills now that they need to eventually be successful adults one day and Number two, a more immediate need to help you get through the day and retain your sanity at the same time. So to learn a simple set of strategies and get a simple tool that's going to help build the skills your kids need in order to be independent and organized and keep track of their assignments, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Next, I wanted to remind you that it helps us so much if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple. All you need to do is just search for Are They 18 Yet? and you can leave us a review. There's usually a big purple button that you have to click if you're on Apple that will allow you to leave a review. So that helps us to get the show in front of more people who need it. And also, I may give you a shout out on a later episode. I wanted to wrap up with our listener shout out this comes from NJC Reviews. This person says, lots of practical information that's easy to listen to and understand. First hand experiences shared hit home. Thank you, Dr. Karen. So thank you so much for your review. We certainly appreciate it. So this concludes episode 11 of Are They 18 Yet? But stay tuned for episode 12, where I sit down with writer and speaker, Dr. Kate Brown, and talk about body positivity, body shaming in the media, and the stories that are being told in a lot of the media that we're consuming, and how we can apply that to the way that we parent our kids. So I'm really excited about that interview that is coming up in episode 12. For now, we'll wrap up 
This is Dr. Karen, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE.